Hey there, folks, and welcome to Bread and Poetry, a podcast about poetry and bread for everyone. I'm your host, Dinelli Antigua, Poet Laureate of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Poet Laureate of your hearts. On this podcast, we talk to the people in our community, the poets and the non-poets alike, about poetry and what it means to them. In the words of Roque D'Arton, I believe the world is beautiful and that poetry, like bread, is for everyone. With me today is Tarek Lothan, award-winning poet, certified a dad joke distributor, and dear, dear friend. I'll read his bio first. Tadak Lothan is a Detroit-born, Dearborn-raised community organizer, data consultant, and Emmy Award-winning poet. The son of Palestinian Muslim immigrants from Gaza, he was named a Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellow by the Poetry Foundation and is a Kresge Arts in Detroit Fellow. Lothan earned his MFA from the Program for Writers at Warren Wilson College and currently serves as a board member of the Offing Literary Magazine. His first collection of poetry, How the Water Holds Me, was named Editor's Selection by Bull City Press and is available now. Welcome, Tarek. Hi. Hey, how's it going? It's okay. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing else that I'd rather do on this very day. Listeners, we are recording on July 4th. Which is insignificant in every possible way. Exactly, but also I love the fact that we are going to have this conversation today and it feels kind of revolutionary and I, yeah, I'm excited about this. Every day is a revolution if you want it to be. Absolutely. With that being said, so let's break bread. Tadek, what role do you play in your local community and tell us about some of the work that you do as a community organizer? Yeah, so I I guess the work I mainly do in my local community right now is exist. <laughs> I <laughs> have not been as good of a community organizer as I would like to be just because the pandemic kind of took a lot of us out of the space and it became really difficult to connect with folks. And prior to the pandemic, I was organizing mostly with people with disabilities, primarily elders. And so when we all had to switch over to technology being a primary mode of communication was a big rift for a lot of the organizing space that I was mostly in back in 2019, 2020. And it hasn't really fully recovered yet, though there has been a lot of headway since then, since a lot of things like ShotSpotter have come up and different initiatives for pushing back against the ways in which the city of Detroit has been particularly egregious towards residents. So I kind of started as a freelance organizer and I would really just plug into different causes that I felt like needed me or could use some extra help. So for example, one of the first things I did when I came back from undergrad in North Carolina was try to help establish the Palestinian youth movement chapter here in Michigan. Um, did that for a couple of years before I felt like I was too old for it. Mm-hmm. And then also found myself kind of getting pulled in other directions where, you know, I was touring a lot. I was also being requested for some aid uh, to help get this other org off the ground. And that's kind of when I pivoted fully to the space where a lot of my comrades and colleagues in the disability justice space were. Um, And I myself also identify as having disabilities, though mine are not as visible. And also I sometimes play that game where I don't really out myself as somebody with disability just because I think that I don't think you should have to be forced to out yourself around certain identifications to be part of a movement um, for whatever reason. So anyways, with that said, I don't think I'm as good of an organizer as I was pre-pandemic. I'm definitely trying to get back into that space. But for now, I've just kind of been supporting from the sidelines, you know, pubbing things whenever I see things come up online, on social media, and then like, you know, making donations where I can. So I think I used to be much more active. My current relationship is that I'm very much an advocate, but not very much an organizer, but I'm definitely swinging back into that organizer frame of mind, especially as I have 
realigned a lot of the stuff I've been doing because I also work full-time job still I'm also a writer and so I've been trying to like give myself grace when it comes to what I'm giving my time to because ultimately you know as much as we want to believe like things like a movement need us if it's truly a movement it will continue without you and so I think I've been trying to be very patient with myself as I take care of my own mental health but yeah my relationship though with Dearborn, Detroit, all that is I was born in Detroit, lived there for as a baby, moved to Dearborn, but so many of our ties were interwoven between Dearborn and Detroit. Like for example, while I went to school in Dearborn growing up, my dad would take us to like the butcher shop in Detroit. And so I vividly remember like watching the roads we would drive on, the spaces we entered, the city we left and the city we we kind of also, if you if the way that De- Dearborn is, is it's kind of in Detroit, but not in Detroit in the same way. Um, Detroit's very large and very sprawling. So yeah, I kind of grew up between the both of them, though most of my formative years were in Dearborn, and then eventually moved to the suburbs. So I think for me, when I got back from undergrad, I had gone to North Carolina for undergraduate schooling. I just kind of poured myself back into Detroit and Dearborn, whether it was you know trying to host events, participate in poetry slams, get connected with local organizers but I always try to say I'm a metro Detroit organizer because I do different work in Dearborn than I do in Detroit and then in Ann Arbor I used to do a lot of literary organizing as well and that's about maybe 40 minutes out of Detroit so different different orgs and different spaces mm. but uh yeah I'm only here because my dad came here <laughs> so aren't we all like aren't we all all only here because our dad came here <laughs> like <laughs> in some form or another yes uh yeah there was a daddy somewhere there is a daddy somewhere that came here and that's why we're here absolutely wow okay so i could say so many things and i i know you talked about you know community organization and i didn't realize it but i guess july is disability pride month is that is that correct i've been seeing it all over like social media and whatnot and i was not aware of that and as someone who also has various disabilities some visible and not visible that was just something new to me and i was excited about it because i did not know that it existed and that yes. that's that's great to to see and to witness and uh, be a part of yeah it definitely is um because i think the ada was signed during this month that makes a lot of sense that makes a lot of sense so, Tarek, you are an award-winning poet for sure. That's a huge deal. You recently won the Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation, which is huge, y'all. Huge. This is a big, big deal. Tell us a little bit about that and what that means for you as a poet. I mean, I think, so I have, I'm two minds about it. So on one hand, I am grateful for it. I'm grateful for all the prestige and the awards that I've been blessed enough to have attained, but I'm also like very much aware that sometimes just because you don't win a thing or just because you do win a thing doesn't mean that you were the best. It just means you might've been caught at the right moment. And so like I played basketball growing up and I never, I never made varsity. And so I know that that didn't mean like I was like the worst basketball player at my school, but it did, it did mean that I wasn't one of the top 15 at that time. But I know if I played ball against some of those folks now, I know that I would definitely make the team these, these days. And so it's interesting to think about like the moments in which something or the moments in which we are discovered or in which discovery happens to be a space we cross. And also like, you know, I, I could have easily not been a poet writing in English. You know, I could have easily been my cousins back in Palestine who could never have won an award like this. I mean, if I was also, I, I know for a long time, awards like the Ruth Lilly, they weren't available to undocumented individuals, right? So there is such a cocktail of factors when it comes to awards that I always want to be naming. But I think once naming that and being, you know, acknowledging the, I guess, the fickle nature of awards, it's an opportunity that I'm really grateful for. But even then, like when I won it, I also, I don't know if I won it so much as I was awarded it. Like somebody saw some work, they liked my statement at that moment. But I'd applied for like the Ruth Lee, for example, for like eight straight years. And it just happened to, to be that the judges that year really vibed with the things that I shared. And I've been tweaking it every year, but 
the work didn't really change drastically. I might have sent maybe different poems that time around. And so that's where I think it's kind of fickle because I could have easily sent the wrong poems at the wrong time. Um, and I saw a lot of the other names on the long list and I felt bad. I was like, I was like, ah, oh, but I wanted that person to win and I wanted that person to win. And so I'm not, I try not to be too precious about it, but I think I'm also, this is where the second, the first mind comes back where I'm like, hey, dude, like you need to stop dismissing achievements and like downplaying good things because it doesn't really please anybody. I remember I had a friend once who had said something along the lines of like, he was talking about praise. He's a well, well-known poet, very well-regarded with, you know, somebody we all know. And he would say that he would do a show and people would come to him after the show and they would be like, hey, I love your work or you're so amazing or whatever. He'd like just general kind praises. And he was like, no, no, no. Like, you know, it's, 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 I'm just okay, blah, blah, blah. And then I think he was speaking to an elder and they were like, why do you do that? And the logic that he had been met with was you, you think you're being humble, but in doing that, what you're actually doing is dismissing the compliment. You're dismissing the kindness. And what you're actually doing is you're telling somebody you're wrong. You don't know talent. You don't know skill. And it was a really interesting thing for me to take where it's like, it's one thing to acknowledge the circumstances that afford me certain privileges but it's also something to acknowledge like hey these judges selected you for a reason and it is disrespectful i think to that decision making process to not be mindful of the ways in which they do vibe with your work and so i try to be i try to toe the line between those two those two realities mm. yeah well thinking about praise i'm interested in praising some bread right now I don't know about you. Oh, <laughs> so the most important question of the show, what is your favorite kind of bread, Tadak? Okay, so first context, I am on keto right now, which is an unhealthy diet. I do not recommend anybody do it, but it works for me. But there are so many keto breads out there that work so well. Like, like I'm like, they're just full of fiber, which I love. I'm just like, ooh, fiber and bread, awesome. But that makes me extremely hungry for bread. So we have a little bit of a power ranking here. I was going to give you like a Mount Rushmore of breads, but then I thought about it more and I gave up on that idea. I want to give a, an honorable mention to flatbreads and the versatility of them. Uh, tortillas are amazing. I love, I love things like chimichurri. Like you, flatbreads hold the world together. There's also like, there's also like the Saraki bread that my mom uses for this dish called msechen, which is like a chicken sumac dish. And that bread is also a flatbread and it's, it's so good. And then, you know, there's things like pita breads and also one of my favorite breads. I don't think this is technically a flatbread, but it, it's like a flatbread that's been blown up like a balloon and it's called buri, which is like an Indian bread. And that is actually one of my favorite breads. It's so flaky and delicious, but there's a funny story about that. Like, I actually used to think it was Egyptian bread because the first time I ever had it was at a restaurant in Egypt called Chicken Tikka, not realizing that Tikka is an Indian cuisine. So for this longest time, I was like, where are these Egyptian restaurants and where's the booty? Um, until I found out that it was not an Arab Middle Eastern dish. But my, my top breads, top two are garlic breads. But I feel like you can't say garlic bread because really any bread can be garlic bread if you put garlic on it. So bread like by itself, brioche. Brioche is so soft. It can be buttery, especially if you sprinkle some like, you know, thick grains of salt on that boy and just like let it, let it have like, oh, there's so, there's so many breads. I feel it's actually kind of disrespectful to ask such a question when we know that there's a whole community of breads that are being left out. It's like awarding a bread, given how fickle this conversation can be. <laughs> yeah. Because like, you know, like, actually maybe pumpernickel isn't that great, but like, you know, there's some breads like they don't make the varsity team, but they're breads that I rock with, you know? And that doesn't mean they're not one of the top 10 breads or top 12 breads in life, but maybe at that moment, they're not. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then somebody from some other bread, like, I just know a bread's going to hit me up and be like, fam, you forgot about me. And I was like, damn, <laughs> I'm so sorry I forgot about you. Um, well, we can we can award uh, like participation awards to all of the breads, all of them. We can do that here. We can do whatever we want. 
I I run this podcast. <laughs> I think I think instead of asking people for their favorite bread, ask for a power ranking of all their breads. <laughs> this podcast should not be about anything but bread. Right, right. I love what you said that flatbreads hold the world together, and I totally agree with that. That's that it was so profound, and. I like what you said about brioche as well, you know, especially when you, you said you sprinkle some salt on that, on that bad boy. Yeah. Brioche the bro. He's, he's soft, lovely. I do love me some brioche, especially like a French toast brioche. Mm, that's, that's where it's at for sure. Tell us a beautiful, powerful, challenging memory about bread. I feel like I'm going to tell you this story and I'm going to be like, yo, that is not the story you should have told because <laughs> there's somebody, there's some story that's more powerful. But I think like for me, I have vivid memories. Um, I think for me, one of the things that I always think about when it comes to whether it's just experience or trauma or joy is that I don't think I've ever had an overwhelming moment of those types of experiences. Hmm. Um, I think for me, they've always been like little accumulating bits so for mm. example like a series of microaggressions and i've definitely had some traumatic experiences i've watched unfold in front of me and have been a part of but nothing has ever really phased me whether it be in the realm of despair or in the realm of joy i'm never really too high or too low and so for me a lot of experiences aren't necessarily a singular moment or singular story which makes it really hard to write sometimes because i'm like i don't have that one image i have a bunch of little many images that I have to like kind of like build into a mosaic of a build a bigger image but thinking of it that way I think pita bread comes to mind a lot because I vividly remember like waking up every morning and my dad and my mom sitting at the dinner table um eating hummus and baba ghanoush which are these like dips um Arab dishes that um Middle Eastern dishes whatever you want to call it where you're dipping pita bread into these very delicious, well, I don't, I don't really vibe with Baba Khandush, I'm more of a hummus guy. But, you know, I just vividly remember that. And also, some of my favorite memories are of this dish, this, uh, this food called mena'ish, which is like a cheese pie, which is cheese or za'atar on a very delicious flatbread, a thick flatbread. And I just remember, like, moments like that where, like, the gathering of my family is hinging upon the presence of this kind of bread where we can use our hands to really feel the meal, enjoy the presence of each other and kind of build those memories together. And actually, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of the story I thought I would have, I could, I should have remembered, um, which is, I vividly remember being in, in Palestine, in Gaza, where like my grandmothers would be up early in the morning, like, like kneading the bread that they would be using later in the later that morning to make mena'ish, which is one of my favorite things to eat. My favorite dish by far, my favorite breakfast food by far is the cheese pie. I don't eat it as much as I, I would like to, but it is so fluffy. It is so decadent. It is so just... <clears throat> and, you know, one of the greatest love languages my grandmothers have from both sides of my, my family, my parents, is making mena'ish, just like... This, this tireless craft of preparing a delicious bread that they then cover with the perfect amount of cheese with their own kind of ratios of like goat cheese and, and mozzarella or whatever, akawi, all that stuff. And just having this delicious, soft saucer of joy <laughs> to bite into. So yeah, pita bread yielding to memories of cheese pies which again further uh build upon the hypothesis that flatbreads hold the world together yeah absolutely and i love what you said about the love languages that your grandmothers you know use to express their love which is you know making this bread making food providing and 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 feeding family and how bread is what brings people together at a table whether it's family or friends, the ancestors, uh, you know, bread really is like that, that great connector and, you know, flatbread being, I think, at, at the, at the center of that, of that connection. So I'm thinking about 
your poetry, obviously, that's what we're here to talk about. And I'm curious what brought you to poetry in the first place? Like, what's your origin story? And yeah, tell us about that. So I, hmm, I think to get into poetry, I have to get into writing first. So, you know, this goes back to like awards and existing in a space where like praise can be the thing that keeps you going or the thing that I think for me actually holds me back. Um, and so I was really blessed to have had really supportive teachers growing up. Um, they, I was a voracious reader, first of all. So I think you can't really be a writer if you're not fueling yourself with reading. And, you know, when I was a kindergartner, first grader, all that, I was always writing these like very elaborate stories. They're all fiction, but different stories. And then eventually, like when I was in fourth grade, I was like writing political essays and like sending letters to our, our representatives, um, which is how I got into organizing. Like I was the kid who would be like marching down the street, waving a Palestinian flag during protests. And when I was like in fourth grade, I was like writing essays to our Michigan representatives. I think it was like Debbie Stabenow at the time and some other dude. And I was like, I think maybe Carl Levin, somebody like that. And I'm like, why are y'all supporting Israel as it proceeds to consistently debase Palestinians? Like, why are we investing our money in this? Why are you putting your, your you know, why are you throwing wind to the sails of this? So anyways, um, very much a politicized kid. Not to say we're not all politicized kids, but I was aware of my politicization. So anyways, um, back to poetry. Poetry I didn't actually stumble upon until I was in high school. So I've been writing all these years, writing essays, writing um, stories, journaling. And then I was in this thing, I was in a combination of classes, actually. So I was a writing center tutor because I had been so active as a writer coming up. I had like had so much support from my fac from from the faculty over the years. And I had like one little like prizes here and there for the submissions I made across my like writing journey as an elementary school kid and then a middle school kid. And then the high school. And so my senior year, I was a writing center tutor. So I was the kid chilling at lunch that people would come to to help them with their writing. And I was also in a class called Humanities. So my teacher for Humanities was also my teacher for Writing Center. And one of the things we had to do was in Writing Center, we were drafting pieces every day. Like that was part of our exercise. Like before the writing tutor work, we had to do the work of writing ourselves. And then in humanities, I was assigned to do an outside activity. So we had to do, I think, like five outside activities each semester where you're going out to the community and doing something with the arts. So I decided to do a poetry slam. It was happening at a local library, so I decided to join it. And I came in second place out of four people. And they gave me a little button for coming in second place that said, is that a poem in your pocket? <laughs> and so... I had that for a long time. I think it's somewhere in like a cupboard or a crate, a storage crate. But yeah, I got into poetry because like I had enough of the positive feedback loop where like I came in second place in this thing. Not only four people yet again, like just to, just to still <laughs> contextualize this. And so like, it's like, it's fraud. Cause I'm like, what if I was like fourth out of four? Would I have continued with this thing? And so I did a slam had some modest success with it. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to start writing poems as my journal entries in Writing Center. And so in a way, it was this like really easy writing form for me because I just kind of felt like it's how I could capture stories in a way that felt a little bit more, um, it just felt freer than story writing was. And then... As I grew older, though, it was less about the freedom of poetry and more about, for me at least, it felt like poetry was a way that I could imbue a texture of emotion, a texture of feeling to the work in a confined space in ways that I hadn't experienced otherwise with other forms of writing. Mm. And so I continued to slam. I continue to perform the work because I think people often have this misconception that, you know, poetry on the stage is somehow divested from or divorced from poetry on the page and it's not right, i think that right. really the best poems can live off the page and um yeah while i was slamming it's not like slam made me a, maybe made, it helped me be a better reader but always my work had had been mindful of of different methods of 
consuming that work. So got into poetry because of outside activity, just some, you mm. know, class stipulation and then kept writing mm. with it. Mm. I, I love how like this, the topic of like praise and encouragement kind of keep coming into our conversations and how the encouragement of your you know, teachers growing up and even just the the encouragement of being second place in a poetry slam competition, how it helped you to uh, gain that that confidence to to continue. And I think that, you know, we were again, we were talking about with the awards that it, it can be a bit fraught sometimes. But, you know, I think as humans, we all need that that affirmation, that that reassurance that we are on the right path. And I'm glad that people in your life were able to, you know, shepherd you in that direction and saying, you know, you're on the right path. So I'm glad people encouraged you in that way, because now look at you, look at you now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I know you also asked the follow-up question of like how it fits in my daily life. I think for those reasons, that's why I believe so heavily in the community organizing mm. and the cultivation of systems and space like i was and i think it's sad to say that i was lucky to have had good schooling and to have had good teachers and have caught the right people or have had the right people catch me and so i think part of why i do the work i do is because i was blessed enough to have that and i think the goal for all of us is trying to make space where we're like weaving that fabric weaving that like net that catches and praises everybody for what they're good at and pushes people along even if they're not so good at it mm, so exactly yeah i mean that's how it fits in my life mm. uh even when i'm not writing i'm trying to create space for other people to express themselves so yeah yeah absolutely and that's similar to like what i do in my work as well um i think we have that in common our just dedication to the communities that we are a part of and how we can uplift them and you, you know uplift them maybe through the lens of poetry So you brought a Safia a hello poem to share with us. Anything we should know about the poem before you read it? What should you know about the poem? I mean, it's one of my favorites. I think part, I mean, on the, on the face of it, because of what it does with language, how it, it's also uses a lot of Arabic words. It's one of those poems where like you, you ever read a poem or read any piece of writing and you're like, oh, I wish I wrote that. Like, gosh, that is so good. That is so smart. That is so impressive. And so just the concept in and of itself is impressive to me. It's something that I just really value dearly. But just also like to hear Safia read it is something beautiful. And I really value the duplicity of the words being used, the ways in which, and I, I mean, I could talk about it, but like what's so good about poems like this is that you don't need me to tell you why it's good. Just listening to it is what makes it good. So I might as well just do that. Whenever you're ready, you can read it to us. Vocabulary by Safia Al-Hilo Fact The Arabic word Hawa means wind. The Arabic word Hawa means love. Test Multiple choice Abdul Halim said You left me holding wind in my hands. Or Abdul Halim said You left me holding love in my hands. Abdul Halim was left Empty, or Abdul Halim was left full. Fairuz said, O oh wind, take me to my country. Or Fairuz said, O oh love, take me to my country. Fairuz is looking for vehicle. Or Fairuz is looking for fuel. Um Kulthum said, Where the wind stops her ships, we stop ours. Or Um Kulthum said, where love stops her ships, we stop ours. Um Kulthum is stuck, or Um Kulthum is home. Mm, that is a beautiful, beautiful poem. When you sent it in to me and I, and I read it, um, you know, to myself, I kind of, I do that thing where like I, I hold my chest <laughs> when I, when I read a really, really good poem. And I felt like that was, after hearing this poem or after reading it, sorry, and even after he hearing you read it, I had to like just kind of hold my chest or like 
I could feel it like living in inside of my body in a really beautiful way that I think only mm. poetry can do and has the power to do. Yeah. So why, why this poem, Dadek? So, I mean, like, you know, so we talked a lot about the craft side of it, the, the concept, but, you know, after I read it, I was like, yes, this poem, because, you know, being somebody who's also been displaced from his home and thinks about the different ways in which I'm also somebody who's always thinking a lot about like what meaning is and what semantics yield. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I've had to really reevaluate what the word love means for me multiple times over. Um, the ideas of possession that, you know, we're often met with when it comes to forms of love that we are raised with. And so I'm always curious about what a word can mean or what the initial interpretation of a word was. Especially like, for example, like when you think about scripture, and I know you and I have different relationships with faith for those reasons, where it's like, mm. what does it mean to like have been given a scripture, have to have been given a word, and then to be told its interpretation by oftentimes like a man or some kind of like patriarchal figure, only to then like actually dig deeper into the words and dig deeper into the context of words and identify actually that was a very self-serving definition of that word that served that figure mm. that didn't serve me. So what does it mean for me to redefine language in a way that serves not just me, but as many people as possible without harming anybody? And so when I look at work, poems like vocabulary, where like hawa means so many different things, and then the through line of the poem is taken through things like being empty or being full, being taken as a vehicle or taken as held in, in, in the love of one's home. Those are things that I think really call to me, really speak to me. And yeah, that's why this poem is so important to me and why I think it's going to be important to a lot of folks who come across it. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think too of like the, the Spanish language and how the, the nuance there in, in, in different words and how words can mean so many different things. And you know, having these really clear or specific definitions sometimes do not leave room for nuance. And then I'm thinking about identity, you know, how language and identity are connected and how our identities aren't necessarily just one thing or another, how there's there's so much to our identities and our relationships to, to language. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I... I feel like also this is such an important conversation to be having not only today, but all the time mm-hmm. and in talking right. about identity and, and how those, those intersect. And I'm curious about the relationship that people who grew up bilingual have to the languages of, of, you know, their family and then the languages of, you know, wherever they, they live. Mm-hmm. So What's your relationship to to language or languages, I should say? Oh, I actually wrote a poem about this once. And honestly, <laughs> my relationship to language is similarly fraught. My Arabic is not that great. Even within Arabic, there are so many different dialects. Um, and so there's some people's Arabic that I just don't understand. And then you start to ask, well... Even if I learned how to speak Arabic, that doesn't mean I'll know how to read Arabic because it's like in Spanish where there's like a formal and informal. We have um, so there's informal and more traditional forms of the language. And so you can know how to speak, but not know how to read or know how to write, so to speak. Mm. And the Arabic dimension of language, it's kind of difficult for me. And it's something I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to relearn my Arabic, but... Part of the reason I have to relearn Arabic is English. I grew up, I was born in, you know, the U.S., Turtle Island, indigenous land, specifically not about Anishinaabe land for those of us here in the Great Lakes area and Michigan specifically. And so I'm here like mastering a language of a colonizer, right? I'm here mastering the language that is arguably not even as sexy as Arabic, right? Like I am <laughs> constantly told how like beautiful and poetic Arabic is, right? And, and how beautiful and poetic, like, you know, things like Spanish are. Like I have a Neruda book that I read often 
And even though I don't understand all the Spanish, because I also learned Spanish in high school, even though I don't remember all the meanings, I know how to pronounce the words. And so I love reading the Spanish translations of like my little book of love by Pablo Neruda. And then I also have like Arabic poems that I don't know how to read, but I have Quran verses that I know and I've memorized by heart because of all like the Sunday school and classes I'd taken growing up. And so like, the poetry of like that verse is also like something embedded in me to an extent or maybe i've been conditioned by it and so i guess i'm bilingual in the sense that like i have half arabic half spanish and then a bunch of english mm. and i've become very good at english but i've also watched how english in and of itself is deteriorating as a language in some ways because of things like social media and shorthand, but also in a lot of ways in which like it is also being pushed and being re recalibrated when we think of things like um, AAVE and the different ways in which like young folks are questioning the colonizer's tongue. And so my relationship with language is fraught for those reasons. There's just so many things to unpack there. And it's weird to be good at a language that your cousins don't speak, mm. you know, to be good at a language that you only had to learn because this is the empire I happen to be in. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Thinking about that, when you said learning a language or speaking a language that your cousins don't speak, and wow, that just really, really hit me hard thinking about that. And some of my family just recently came from the DR uh, for a trip for my grandfather on my mm. paternal on my paternal grandfather's 100th birthday mm. there are a lot of cousins there that I that I haven't met mm. and I did not go on the trip but I remember one of the things that I was thinking about even if thinking about the possibility of going on the trip was the language how I also do not feel like mm. my Spanish is good enough to really take me anywhere <laughs> um, you know I can have some conversations but the 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 Spanish language is not the one that I'm studying or trying to master. Like you said, it's it's the language of the colonizer, which is English. But also to me, Spanish is also the language of the colonizer, considering where yeah. I'm yes. from. You know, like yeah. the the Taino language is is not used as much, you know. It it's 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 not something that we speak. So it there are so many different layers to this conversation about language again like there's so many nuances and it's difficult to unpack it's also a beautiful thing to unpack and while you were talking about reading neruda and knowing how to pronounce the spanish words however not knowing necessarily what they meant i was thinking about spanish words that have origins in arabic words and i was thinking of the word ojalá which mm -hmm. means like God willing, or like, I wish, or I hope. And like, you can definitely hear how that has, you know, Arabic influences, ojalá, which has Allah in right, right in the word, you know? And I, yeah, like, yeah. I, I, it's so hard to just languages themselves, their words have origins in, in so many different places. And it's a beautiful thing. It's also a really complicated thing uh, to even try to to separate yeah. the two, and I I love how Safia is 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 doing that work for us on the page, using the blank space on the page to create that tension, and I'm really curious about the definition of home and the definition of wind. You know, she starts off with wind and then ends up at home. And we're going to be talking about mm -hmm. some wind in your poem, but I, I've been thinking about is, is language a home? Is language a wind? Mm. Does language keep us stuck or make more homes for us? I think it depends. Like, so I was going to ask you what your favorite word is, because as I was thinking about, you know, I'm glad that you brought up and the conversation just naturally went to, you know, the Spanish and Arabic similarities. I was thinking like, I really like the word sugar. Because sugar in English is azúcar in Spanish, I believe, mm -hmm. and then it's sukkar mm -hmm. in Arabic, and so like this is a this is like a religious scripture thing. I'm not hella religious, but like 
you know, I grew up with certain things. <laughs> and I think one of the things we were taught growing up was that like God gave Adam the names and the names can mean anything, but I think it means language in some ways. Mm. And so like, like to know what the name of something is. And it's just like, of course, the words that we use would be so similar because mm-hmm. yeah, like there's has to, there had to have been some kind of like, like some kind of point of singularity for language to have like divided from in the first place. I, I'm guessing we should definitely get like a linguist on this podcast at <laughs> yeah. some point. But what are your favorite words? First, I want to comment on what you just said, like there being like a central point to where, you know, where language began. And I'm thinking about, you know, in the, in the Bible, we talk about uh, the Tower of Babel and how the the languages began mm-hmm. from, from yep. that, that place. And in a way, the languages, if, again, I, my... My, my Bible stories are a little bit all jumbled up in my head, but if I'm remembering correctly, the the Tower of Babel, they were trying to build a tower that would reach the heavens. And God was like, hell no. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, let me, <laughs> let me bring or confuse them and have them all speak different languages so they no longer can work together and build this tower that'll reach the heavens. Oh. So it was almost as if like language came from a place of wanting to separate us connectivity yeah and but and, you know disconnecting and somehow either way regardless of that desire to disconnect us which it has in some ways there are still these points of connectivity kind of with that you know with the word ohala that's a point of connectivity and that's like a way of you know kind of saying you know, F you to the Tower of Babel, but I don't want to say that. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but, you know, just to what happened there, you know, like <laughs> it's just revolution. It's a revolution. We're like, absolutely not. You know, Tower of Babel, despite that, we're still making and and finding ways to connect through language. So that's what I'm going to say. Yeah. yeah. Tune in for Dianelli's next podcast, <laughs> Bread and Blasphemy. <laughs> Bread and Blasphemy. I think I, I do blaspheme a lot on this podcast and in my in my life. So I want to pivot just a little bit because we're talking about about Safia's poem, and I want to bring Safia's voice into the room. So I looked up an interview that Safia did with Brooklyn Rail about her book, The January Children. And Brooklyn Rail asks, I was struck throughout the book by how much you talk about language. There is a sense of disconnection and exile but something more, a disconnection from your own voice in a way. And Safia responds, I think a not uncommon symptom of being a child of diaspora is the privilege and torture of bilingualism. I have access to the two worlds that the two different languages contain, but I'm also never going to be entirely fluent in either because part of me will always belong to the other one. It's been the source of a lot of shame, feeling not fully of one of those worlds or the other. A new development in trying to exorcise some of that shame is accepting that there's a third language that forms in the hybrid space between the two of them. And that language is my first language, my native language. Hmm. What I was trying to do in these poems that have both English and Arabic text in them was just trying to render as directly as possible the way that language actually works in my head or in situations where I'm most comfortable. My mother and I, or my brother and I, or my cousins and I, we speak in this combination of Arabic and English. Those are the only situations where I don't feel like I'm translating one to another because the word comes out in whatever language it was thought in. A lot of these poems, at their conception, were trying to cut out this process of translation that I have to do all day, every day. I wasn't trying to write in anyone's language, but my own. That is a beautiful fucking quote by Safia. And I guess like what, <laughs> before we, we move yes. to, to your poem, any comments about, about what, what she said? Not really. I think um, I can always speak to like, for example, especially with, with Safia, right? Like she's often spoken about how, um, you know, to be identified as an Arab in a lot of ways is incorrect right she identifies as an arabicized black person and even the language of identification is so unique for a lot of us like for me 
I'd always thought about like, what does it mean to say Arab American when I don't think I would have cared to be an American, nor do I care with, care for the, a lot, I, I don't care for a lot of the uh, associations that come with America, mm. right? I, I, and I can't say I'm, you know, Arab Turtle Islander, right? Like it's because it, in a lot of ways, like, what does it mean to be a part of the land that you were stolen to? Um, and that's a line from another poem that I won't, I'm not going to read today, but like, I think I can't add to anything Safia said because she speaks to it so perfectly. And I think that we don't always have to say something, but what I can speak to around context is I've often been trying to grapple with what it means to define myself. Mm. Like, I don't really like the term Arab American. Um, I usually use the word Palestinian diaspora or diasporic Palestinian because frankly, like to say I'm Arab means that maybe people might misconstrue my alignment with like other countries in what is considered Arabia, like Gulf states like Saudi Arabia or, or Qatar or states like that. But like all I've ever known is countries like Saudi uh, not giving a, a shit, uh, sorry for swearing, not giving a damn about Palestinians, right? And so what is this, like to be Arab, actually Arab is such an interesting identity because it is literally based on shared language, mm-hmm. right? And so some ways Sudan is considered Arab because it is, you. It, it, the, the language is, is Arabic, but in so many ways it is not considered Arabic because the population is black and we also know that the world is rife with anti-blackness um, and the Arab world is not any different in that regard. And so what does it mean to be called something and to be part of this quote-unquote Arab League of Nations when language in and of itself is the only binding factor you have? And so I don't vibe with a lot of what Saudi Arabia is or stands for. Um, and the only reason it has such a prevalence in the Arab world is because Islamically speaking, the Kaaba is there, right? Mecca is there. These very, like this very important city to Muslims who comprise a large population of Arab nations is in that locale. Mm. But politically speaking, practically speaking, there is nothing for me in Saudi Arabia. There's nothing about Saudi Arabia that isn't colonizer or empirical in practice and so why would i want to call myself arab when i could be more precise about the kind of arab i am which is palestinian and my experience as an arab who is palestinian is different than the experience of an arab who is yemeni or an arab who is you know from any other country so yeah i think precision is what i can hopefully add to Safia said. So you have one of your own poems to share with us. Anything we should know about that poem before you decide to read it? No, I'm just going to read it. I'm sure we can talk about it after. I will say, you know, this does go back to what I talked about earlier with regards to how, like, I don't really get too high or too low. I don't really feel things too deeply, um, except for maybe when I'm writing. And writing is always a very cathartic process for me. So the title is I Felt Nothing, which is also the first line in the poem. I felt nothing when I again rode the roller coaster at a certain American theme park, hoping that it would bring me some joy. The thrill that comes with being shot through air I'd never otherwise experience. Yet, not a single feeling passed through me, save for the discontent that comes with knowing that no matter how little time it takes for me to turn point A into point B, I will never become wind. I will always be a skeleton marked by the flesh that holds it, a tire that can get me through a turnstile, but not necessarily a checkpoint at the airport or the other airport or a border. Do you see it? How lovely it would be to become something that cannot be contained to become something so present, yet so far out of reach, that no man even thinks of trying to lay his hands on it. Mm. Thank you so much. Um, Again, I'm like holding my heart. You mentioned it a little bit before you read the poem, but what was it like writing this poem? 
Um, I mean, for me, it's like any other poem I write. I feel like I'm really good at bottling things up and poetry is it's the way I process, right? Like I, lots of things don't really phase me in the moment and then I kind of carry it with me. And then when I have a chance to write or a chance to maybe oftentimes sing. So that's the one thing I didn't bring up earlier when I talked about poetry. Poetry is a form of song for me. And so while I, I can hold a note, but I can't really sing. And so <laughs> um, a lot of my poetry starts off with me just like reciting lines. Like I'll say lines out loud. And then before I know it, I'll string a couple lines together. And I'm like, oh, that's a poem. And that's how I process an experience. I process a feeling. I process a moment in my life. And so for me, like, I paired the image of like me basically like waiting at Cedar Point alone and thinking about like, what is it about like roller coasters that I love? But the thing is, I had been going on enough roller coasters where I was like, I actually don't feel anything anymore. Like, I just, I don't feel fear. So what is it about this experience that has me doing it still, um, if at all? And so like, I don't know if I outgrew roller coasters. I don't know if I outgrew fear or if I had outgrown types of fear or if I just numbed myself to the fear that comes from roller coasters but i think for me it was also interesting because i was also like traveling a lot but you know before i got tsa pre-check and all that stuff i was getting stopped occasionally things like that and so i kept also thinking about like being palestinian like i haven't been back to palestine in over 16 years for fear that i can't get in or for fear that i can't get out if i do get in and so there are a lot of things I process when it comes to, to movement and the freedom of movement. And so poetry has been a way for me to kind of process my own feelings. It's catharsis in a lot of ways. And so the writing of this poem was me processing movement, but also processing different kinds of feelings like fear and bravery and what it means to be so even keel in the face of stuff. Is that a trauma response? Is that just who I am? I don't know. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, you, you said so many beautiful things. I don't even know where to start, but you were talking about like the freedom of, of movement. And I mean, you mentioned wind here and then that also ties back to Safia's poem, you know, wind. And you say, I will never become wind. I will always be a skeleton marked by the flesh that holds it. And thinking about, well, if wind is synonymous with home, I will never become home. I was just thinking about that. Maybe. But if the same word for wind in Arabic is also love, then maybe I will become love. You know, maybe love is the thing that I become, whether it's love for myself or love for the spaces around me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Look at us having a therapy oh, session, real, real time. Well, that's always what happens on this podcast. And as I will say, I want to just say the word empathy because I always say it in every episode. So I'm just going to say the word empathy and we don't have to say anything else. <laughs> just empathy. Okay. Um, thinking about what you just said about becoming love, love for yourself, love um, in, in, in general, love for others, perhaps. Wind cannot be contained is it the same with love? Like love cannot be contained. And what would it mean to become so much love that no man could lay his hands on it? Well, I think that's what love is, right? It's something that we aspire to have or aspire to embody or aspire to. And I think maybe people, people get it wrong when they try to possess love. Um, I think love is something you pass through. And if we're, I don't want to say lucky. I want to say if we're present, we can pass through it with it for as long as we want um or we have to learn how to move with it if it does change shape or take form in different ways and so i think for me i've been through a lot of things that i'm not going to recount on this podcast mm. but i think the only way i was able to make it and stay and basically basically stay alive i, I, I can say that i can say there are many many times where i should have been dead and if it wasn't for love, whether it be an external love that I was given, which I don't think I've gotten enough of to be, to be frank or to be honest with you, um, it forced me to learn how to love myself and to also be loving 
when I am not met with the love I think we should meet most people with, if not all people with. Because I often just think like folks who are like led astray and, you know, become, you know, the evil villain origin story is because they weren't met with the love they deserved or the love that they needed. Um, similarly, right, like I could easily not be writing if I wasn't met with praise, which is a form of love. And so love is not something you contain. It is something that you give. It is something that you release in hopes that it can shroud you and those you release it towards in something good and something that holds them. But it's not, it's not something you can really like possess. I really think you can pass through it and, and, and move with it. And the folks who are present and attentive to love and think about love, whether it be systemic or otherwise, are the people that I want to spend my time with. Because I think those people are also the ones with their pulse on what it means to be a person, what it means to be a person among persons, and to be people among people. Mm. Yeah. I I mean, I mentioned in, in the intro that you're a dear friend of mine. Listeners, he really is a dear friend of mine. <laughs> There's, you know, our, our friendship, we've, it's been quite a few years at this point, I think 2019. I think that was when we like actually started to become uh, really good friends. And I'm, you mentioned something about how like there were plenty of moments in your life where you could have died, but if it weren't for love, if it weren't for, you know, love for yourself or the people or the love that people gave you, you know, then you wouldn't be here. And I mean, I don't mind saying this on the podcast, but Tadek, you've shown up for me in a lot of different ways in moments where I needed to feel love, where I needed to feel like I was worthy of that and worthy of, of praise and encouragement and worthy to continue on in this world. And so I am taking this opportunity to tell you how grateful I am for our friendship and how grateful I am for the love that you've shown and for really... I guess, practicing what you're preaching. Like, and I, and I see that, I see that not just in, you know, in our friendship, but I see in the way that you support your community, you are spreading love in so many different ways and to so many different you know, populations of people, whether they're, you know, poets or, or not. I, I really do feel like that's, that is like at the core of a lot of your work. Thank you. Um, I try. I think that's the big thing, right? Just trying. Because, like, I mean, to be human is... So, actually, uh, speaking of words, um, in Arabic, the word insan, uh, one of the root words is nisat, which means to forget. And I think, as a person, I think we're very... I think humans are forgetful. And it's really hard to approach life with, like, a systems way of thinking because it's not how we're taught to be, um, especially in the culture we exist in in the States. And like, I've hurt people, you know, I've been hurt by people. I've, I've watched myself let that pain be pain towards others. I think one of the poems from the chapbook was like about my sister, where it's like, I grew up being bullied. And in a lot of ways, like I grew up bullying my sister on a, on a number of occasions. And so like, I don't want to paint the picture of like, oh, I'm this like great person, but like, I've learned to become a better version of myself every single day. And you know, because of that version of who I am every single day, I try to like account for and repair and transform any, any situations in which I'm not embodying the love I think I should be. There was something that we said, so like loving oneself. I think that's also something I try to do. I don't think I love myself. I'm not like one of those people who is like unapologetic. I'm very apologetic. <laughs> and so I think I give love I give love hoping to receive it back. And so like when you express things like you did about like the way I've shown up for you, when I'm not able to love myself, at the very least, I try to give love to others. And it's because of that love and those friendships and those connections that like there are people like you who hold me and make spaces like this a joy to be in. So yeah, grateful for you and for your naming of things. Oh, well, thank you. Oh, my heart is all warm and stuff <laughs> and full. Um, so we're going to pivot now. Now is the time for that gluten-free segment. 
or glutton-free, as I like to call it, where we leave you with a little morsel you don't need to feel guilty about indulging in, usually a writing prompt related to the poems we've heard or the topics we've discussed. So, Tarak, what do we have for the people today? And we can think about this in real time. What, what are your thoughts? Hmm. So I've been thinking a lot about apocalypse and part of the reason for my valuing of community is because of wondering how we hold each other in the face of apocalyptic times, knowing that like what we exist in right now is relatively apocalyptic, apocalyptic, maybe not in the movie way that people think about, but in the like the ways in which like, for example, the Supreme Court just like did some wild shit, right? Some wild stuff. When it comes to people's rights. And yet here we are supposedly celebrating Independence Day, right? And so I guess what I would like the prompt to be, well, first of all, give yourself a bank of words. On one side of it, things that make you feel free. On the other side of it, things that make you feel captured. Do a guzzle, G-H-A-Z-A-L, if they need to look it up, using those words. And yeah, I'll let people do what they want with that. So it's a little bit of rigidity, but also a little bit of freedom. I like that you brought freedom into the, into the prompt because I, I mean, that was obviously part of our conversation and thinking about how wind can't be contained, but the way in which we can contain the wind is to put it in a poem <laughs> and, and to that, that container is I think the only one in which wind can be contained. Otherwise, you know, wind is, is free. It is, it's, you, you cannot hold it in your hand. Um, and yeah, I love the, that yeah. idea. But you can direct it though, just like love. Oh yes. Amen. <laughs> you can direct it just like love. No. Yeah. I was also thinking about um, a prompt related to just your relationship to a particular word, similarly to, you know, uh, Safia's poem, home and wind and how many different definitions and can we explore and think about when we think about one particular word, whichever word you end up choosing, maybe a word that you have a really strong relationship to one that you like a lot and love, or maybe one that you dislike and maybe just exploring, exploring that, exploring the freedom and, and the, the constraints in, in that way. So that's, that's what we got, yeah. folks. Take it or leave it, but it is gluten-free, so it's for everyone, okay? <laughs> hey. So, listeners. No carbs, no calories. Right, it, this, it could be keto, it could be keto bread, y'all. It could. <laughs> so, listeners, if you write a poem using the prompts we've suggested, we ask that you submit it for consideration to be published in a future anthology that will showcase work inspired by this podcast. Please submit your poems to pplpsubmissions at gmail.com or submit using the form linked in the show notes on our Instagram bio at Bread and Poetry Podcast and my website, dinelliantigua.com. As a reference, you can also find a link in the show notes and on Instagram to an archive of the writing prompts on each episode so far. So Tadak, before we run out of time, where can people find you and your work? So people can find me at my name, poems.com or my name poems on social media with the at sign. Um, it's Tariq poems, basically T-A-R-I-Q, P-O-E-M-S, um, but otherwise, I, I think in terms of like, I think my work, I don't really care if people find my work so much as long as they find things local to them that they can plug into. That is always my like battle cry. So build community where you are, express love where you are. Um, and if you know, you have some time, find me. Mm, yeah, I love that. Well, I'm excited about about people being able to find your work because because it's absolutely beautiful and breathtaking. So I, I hope they that their love extends all the way there because your work deserves that love. Absolutely, for sure. Thank you again, Tarek, for joining us and for sharing your beautiful work and this, this conversation. I, I really appreciate you, man. It's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. 
This has been Bread and Poetry Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Bread and Poetry Podcast and Twitter at Bread Poetry Pod. Please rate, review, and subscribe to keep this thing kicking. This podcast is sponsored by the Portsmouth Poet Laureate Program. Follow them on Instagram at PPLPNH. Please consider making a donation at pplp.org slash donate to help fund this volunteer-run nonprofit in its mission to further build community through poetry. Cover art for this podcast is by Najee Brown, and theme music is by Stu Diaz. Stay tuned for more episodes of Bread and Poetry coming at you because truly, who doesn't love bread and who doesn't love poetry? Until then, my dear ones. I know, I know what the bread is. Okay. Okay. All right. So are we good to get started? Uh, All right. That's me um, bringing in the ancestors. (laughs) Welcome. Hello, ancestors.